All right. I'd invite you to turn in your Bible with me to the book of Habakkuk. If you hit Matthew, you've gone too far, but not that far. So just go back a couple pages. We've been here now for the last few weeks, and we'll be continuing in this, um, this book, this minor prophet. And today we will start in verse 12 of chapter 1, and we're going to read through the end of verse 1 of chapter 2. Uh, so if you would please stand with me as we read God's word this morning. And let me pray for us. Father God, as we come to your word, we ask that you would open our eyes, that you would open our our ears and open our hearts, God, that you would speak to us this morning. Use this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Habakkuk 1, chapter 12 through 2, chapter... 1 verse 12 through 2 verse 1. Habakkuk's second complaint. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong... Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He, that is the wicked man, brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad, therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. This is God-inspired word for us this morning, so please be seated. Now we continue this morning, obviously, in the book of Habakkuk with yet this another complaint from the prophet of God spoken against God, spoken to God himself. And before we go any further with this, I just want to remind you that that what we just read and what we now hold in our hands, this is God's inerrant, inspired, and infallible word for us. This is not just a history book, nor is it written just to a particular people in a particular time about a particular situation, although it was and it is, but it is also And always will be living and active and powerful. And it is God's gift to us. And so why might we ask, is God giving us the gift of a divine complaint? You know, I I hope that you have seen by now as we've gone through this book that, that God is actually showing us an appropriate way to come to him when we have issues with God. 
when things are not as we wish that they would be. Now, just a, a simple show of hands, you can, you can put them up and keep them up as long as you want. How many of us right now would say that God has given us everything we ever asked for right when we wanted it? Okay, did you hear my question? How many of us, put your hand up, has God given you everything you ever wanted right when you asked for it? Okay, nobody. Not a single person. How many of us have ever dealt with things like depression or damaged relationships or doubt or injury or illness or financial uncertainty or the loss of loved ones or despondency as we looked around at the state of the world? Has that ever been you? Would you raise your hand? Okay, I think that's almost every hand. And so where do we turn when the future is murky? And what do we do when we see that things are not the way that they should be? That the wicked are enjoying all the best things in life while those who work hard and do everything the right way suffer? Well, Habakkuk gives us an answer in that, we're that we are to take our complaints, we are to take our concerns, we are to take our problems straight to the top. Now, the name Habakkuk is a form of the Hebrew word for embrace. And we, we've been studying this book for a few weeks now, and you might be thinking, well, um, embrace is kind of a strange name because we don't seem to find a lot of overly affectionate language here. There's, there's not really a lot of sentimental uh, correspondence happening now between God and his prophet. And in fact, if we could summarize it, we might say that, you know, Habakkuk is asking God these questions. Are you deaf? Are you blind? Are you dumb? Are you powerful? Are you really who you say you are? Because if you are, why is the world the way that it is? See, these are real, honest, heart wrenching, soul-getting questions that only come after we experience prolonged periods of intense pain and suffering, and that's what Habakkuk has dealt with. So when we think about the term embrace, we should think more than the term of a wrestler. Now, do we have any former wrestlers in the room? If you do, please raise your... Okay, so um, I'm going to ask Greg and Porter to come down. And I'd like you guys to stand right in the center, and, and let's pretend as if we're about to start a wrestling match. Um, <laughs> and you're going to face your opponent, and, and all I want to do is see what your very first move is going to be, okay? Okay, okay, stop, 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 stop. Okay, thank you, thank you. Okay, yeah, have a seat. I didn't tell them we were going to do that, so thank you for being good sports about it. Did you see what they did? Did you see the embrace of the rest? As soon as we said go, and they're not even wrestling for real, what's the first thing they do? Go face to face, right towards each other. And so we come to Habakkuk, and what do we see? We see the prophet of God looking God straight in the face and coming right at him with his complaints. Now, that might... You might think that he's either crazy or, or it takes a lot of guts. What I think that we really see is this takes a great deal of faith 
a strong relationship to know that I can go straight to God with my problems. Because what happens with most of us, what do we do when that bell rings? We flee. We start looking other places. When things aren't as they should be, we try to figure out how we can fix those ourselves. And yet here is Habakkuk saying, if you are who you say you are, why is the world like this? Why are you not doing anything about this? Think of the strength of the relationship between the prophet and his God. So what does Habakkuk want? Well, really he wants God to show up and to show off, right? To intervene on his people's behalf, to to do something, really to do anything, to acknowledge the misery of his people, to alleviate their suffering, to prove that he is who he has always said that he was. To do again for his people what he had once done for them before. As you look at the beginning of these verses, what do we see here? He is from everlasting, O Lord, that's that word Yahweh, my God, my Holy One. We shall not die. Here's the confidence, right? Here's the Babylonians who are gathering strength and God had just told them, I'm about to do something that you wouldn't believe. You wouldn't believe it if I told you. And it wasn't like something good. It was, I'm going to strengthen the Babylonians so that they are going to come and overthrow your nation. Just like they have already done to the northern nation of Israel. And so, Judah, you may have a little bit of time here, but this is going to be happening to you. And so here's Habakkuk saying, hey, you are the everlasting Yahweh, the eternal, the self-existent I am. You are the Holy One, the Almighty, the sovereign King over all creation, who alone has authority to judge the earth. You're the rock. You're the one that all creation bows before. You're the one who once upon a time heard the cries of a desperate, oppressed people, and you intervened. You came and you overthrew the the fiercest army in the land of the mighty Egyptians. You delivered us from their many gods and their many chariots and their many soldiers. You freed us from the iron hand and heart of Pharaoh. You were the one that delivered the promised land into our hands. You were the one who gave victory over giants and armies. So why are you silent now when we need you the most? There's a few things we're going to look at this morning, some reasons that God may be silent. The first reason is sometimes God is silent because we have gone far away. See, Habakkuk brings his complaint to God after that northern army already fell into the hand of the Babylonians. But that was because of judgment for their own religious idolatry and spiritual adultery. They had abandoned the worship of Yahweh and they began to adopt those practices and customs of the neighboring nations. Now, did did Judah, the southern kingdom, learn from the mistakes of the northern kingdom? They did not. And while Judah is going to survive in sort of independency for another century after the fall of Samaria in the north, and they were for the most part performing their religious duties to God, they still had some problems. 
So they brought the prescribed offerings to the temple. They, they memorized the scriptures. They repeated all the right passages. They, they sung the right songs at the right times of year. Their services were regimented and methodical. And they met all of God's written requirements. Things looked great. But there was one problem. They did not love God. See, in their services, they, they praised God with their lips and with their hearts, but their hearts were far away. Their hearts did not belong to God. Their trust was in their prosperity, believing that their performance had earned them God's divine favor and blessing. But God was not their treasure. Their, their treasure was their treasure. Their comfort was their treasure. Their peace was their treasure. Their independence was their treasure. They worshipped God on the Sabbath, but they worshipped themselves all the rest of the week. See, like Israel, Judah had fallen into the idol worship of the surrounding nations. They erected altars to other gods. They grew proud. They grew comfortable. They grew complacent. And as the world stage was starting to change, the Babylonians were gaining power over the Assyrians and the Egyptians. Judah now realizes that, hey, we're going to be in trouble. And we're crying out to God for relief. And God is not answering. In Luke chapter 15, the, the gospel records three separate parable accounts. Uh, they, they've got the same theme, this common theme. They're the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the last one we know is, is the prodigal son, really the lost son. So the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Even if you didn't grow up in church, you're probably familiar with this parable, right? Um, so a father has two sons, and one day the younger son comes to his father and says, give me everything that belongs to to me, right? I want my inheritance now. And as soon as he gets it, he immediately goes off into a faraway land to enjoy all of the pleasures of life to excess. But as often happens when you live like there's no tomorrow, the money runs out and just then a severe famine starts to hit the land. And instead of eating and drinking and fulfilling every base desire that he has, he no longer has enough even to fill his belly. And so he takes a job, the only job he can find, taking care of pigs. And he's living so meagerly that he longs to eat the slop that he's feeding to the hogs. And, and that's when he comes to his senses, scripture says, and, and he remembers how his father treated his own servants who had always had more than enough bread to eat. Now, let me ask you the question, where was his father that whole time? See, it wasn't as if his father ran away from him, was it? It wasn't as if he was crying out to his father and calling and his father wasn't responding. Where was his father? His father was back home, where he'd always been. He had been insulted and rejected and abandoned by his son. And the father didn't send out a search party because he knew that his son knew what? His son knew how to get back home. He gave his son everything he asked for. He didn't stop him from leaving. He didn't say the only way you're coming back into this house is in a body bag. The way some of us might be tempted to say. He didn't threaten. He didn't accuse. He gave him what he asked for and he allowed him to walk away. 
See, there's so much to this parable, but what we, what we need to see now is that the, while the son was gone, the father was silent, but it wasn't because he didn't care. It wasn't because he was apathetic. It wasn't because he, he didn't love his son. In fact, what we see is that as the son returns, the father had been scanning the horizon every day looking to see, is he coming home? Is he coming home? And as soon as he finds him, He's waiting to welcome him. He, he runs out to, not to wrestle him into submission, but to embrace him with a kiss and a ring and a robe. He didn't rub his face in his mistake and tell him, don't you ever dare do that again to me. He didn't force him to promise to repay what he had given as if he ever could. And he said, it's, it's time for a feast. Bring out the best of everything. My son was dead and now is alive. He was lost and has been found. So the father let him know that this was where he would always belong because no matter what, he would always be his son. So his place in the family was secure because it was never predicated on how much he produced, was it? Nor was his father's love ever conditioned upon his son's good behavior. See that while the son was far off, he couldn't hear his father's voice. And sometimes God is silent because maybe we have strayed a bit too far away from the house of our Father. Now, what is the most dangerous sin in the world? It's actually right in here, right? Ours. The Times in London in the early 1900s, they asked for essays to answer this question, what is wrong with the world? You've probably heard this before. I think you've heard it from this pulpit. And the, short, the shortest response they received was, was this, just four words. Dear sirs, I am. Yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. See, before I bring my complaints to God, you're not answering my, my questions. You're not responding to my complaints. I have to kind of come to terms with, with my own sin, don't I? Is God not listening to me because I ran away from him? Is he not responding to me because I'm too far away to hear his voice? Do I need to return to be embraced once again by my father? Well, sometimes God is silent because we're seeking the, the wrong answers in the wrong places. In, in 1 Kings chapter 19, there's another prophet by the, name, by the name of Elijah. And he had, in fact, seen God do some incredible things. If you know the story of Elijah, he had stopped rain over an entire nation. He rose a dead child back to life. He, he called fire down from heaven. He defeated 400 false prophets of Baal. He had seen God do miraculous things. And yet in, in 1 Kings 19, we find that he's fleeing for his life from an evil queen, Jezebel. And he's so full of despair and anxiety that he sits down in the wilderness and begs God to do what? To take his life. And at that moment, God tells Elijah that he's going to pass by. And this is from 1 Kings 19, 11 through 13. And he said, go out, God said this, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. 
and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a slow, of a low whisper, which is actually the sound of silence. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? See, are we looking for God to answer us in great, big, mighty demonstrations of power? That's what Elijah was looking for, right? He sees an earthquake and he sees a whirlwind and he sees fire and he's thinking, surely God is here, surely God is here, surely God is here. Right, so many of us are, are tempted to, to do things like look at the, the newspaper. No, that, that doesn't exist anymore. Read, read the internet news, right? And we, and we see the things that are happening around the world and we say, surely God is doing something there. Surely God is doing something there. Why isn't God answering me here? I want a sign that's so obvious that it's going to like smack me in the face. I want God to do something that I can't possibly miss. Kind of like that, that preacher in the town that had the dam that was breaking. You heard of this guy, right? And, and the message is coming out. Everybody's supposed to flee the town. He's sitting on his front porch and he's praying. And the, the guy drives by in a Jeep and says, preacher, get on the Jeep. We've got to get out. He said, no, I'm praying. God's going to save me. And so the dam begins to, to break and the water starts to come down. And now he's, he's up on the second story of his house. And the boat comes by and the guy says, hey, preacher, get in the boat. He goes, no, thanks. I'm praying. God's going to save me. Right, and the water keeps coming in, and now he's up on top of the, the chimney, and he's, he's dangling there, and the helicopter's coming by. They've got one of those baskets, and he says, Preacher, get in the basket. No thanks. God's going to save me. And what happens, of course, is he drowns. He gets to heaven. God says, well, I'm kind of surprised to see you here now. He says, well, why didn't you answer me? Well, I sent a Jeep and a boat and a helicopter. I mean, how much more answers did you want from me? Right? How, how, how many times do we look for other things than what God has already placed in our way? We're looking for some, some divine answer to an issue where, where God has actually given us an answer. You know, we, how many people say, God, why don't you speak to me? And yet they've got his word right in front of them. See, Habakkuk wants judgment for transgression and injustice, and God... God is actually going to bring it. But it's going to start with the judgment of his own people. That in their brokenness, their hearts might finally, finally be turned back to God. Because God loves them too much to give them that quick and easy answer to their prayer. See, God does not content with what is good temporarily right now. He desires what is best for his people. And his silence may be showing us that what we need is not what we think. And maybe it's not coming from the place we expect. And then sometimes God is silent because he is conforming us to his will for our lives. And we've already seen the, the lost son and now the confused prophet. And, and now we come to that perfect son. A one who also received a silent response from God. See, on the night he was betrayed, we find it right here that Jesus is out in the garden. And he's pouring out his soul to his father. And he's in such a state of distress 
that he's starting to sweat blood. This is a, a medical condition called hematohydrosis, which, which actually is the, the capillaries in, in your, near your sweat glands bust open under extreme stress. And, and Jesus is out and he's praying to his father, my father, if it be possible, if you are willing, let this cup pass from me. Now, what is Jesus talking about? Well, he foresees this terrible evil and violence that he is going to personally experience in just a few hours. The son is in anguish. He's longing for his father's embrace, looking for relief. And the only answer he receives is silence. But he continues, yet not my will, but yours be done. See, what is God's will for our lives? In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, we read that those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. See, God may be silent to allow us to grow in ways that we never could without his silence. To allow us to become secure enough to ask those hard questions and make hard accusations even when he isn't responding to us. See, it's a bigger problem when we're not asking those questions to God than when we are. If we're not asking the hard questions to God, that means that we're looking somewhere else. We're turning other places for answers. The Babylonians, they were, what were they doing? They were worshiping their nets. They, they, they had these idols that looked like, like fish, and they bowed before them. Where was their security? Where was their identity? It was in their luxury, their comfort, their power, their might, their ability to take care of themselves. Does that hit a little bit close to home for anybody? See, in our suffering and in his silence, God may be removing from us any obstacles that keep us from being more and more dependent upon him. See, unless and until our hearts are fully devoted to God, our prosperity, our success success often takes us farther from God, not brings us closer to him. See, we we grow proud and self-reliant. God doesn't desire our comfort. He wants our conformity to his will and to find a true contentment in his embrace. And many of you have known, and we, we've been sharing this uh, all throughout the way, that, that our family's been on this adoption journey now for, uh, it'll be three years uh, in a couple weeks, trying to bring our, our daughter home from overseas. And we're not alone in this. And there's, there's hundreds of other families that are waiting to, to bring their kids home. And just a couple weeks ago, some friends of ours were informed that, that their child, who is eight years old, decided they don't want to be adopted. That they would rather stay living in an orphanage than, than they would going to a loving, caring Christian home. Again, she's eight years old, and you ask this question, how could God allow something like this to happen? How could God not act? Doesn't God hear the prayers of these people who are so desperately trying to reach these children? Doesn't he see them? And yet the response of this family has been incredible. They're trusting that what God is doing 
course, they're, they're heartbroken and they're devastated. And, but they're saying, not our will, God, your will be done here. What is God doing in his silence? Does he not hear the cries of his own son? Did he not see the anguish? The son was being conformed to the will of his father. And finally, more joyously, sometimes God is silent because he is about to do something so incredible. We would not believe it even if he told us. If you've seen the movie The Incredibles, there's this little boy who rides up on a tricycle behind this massive Mr. Incredible who's, you know, he's this huge guy in the tiny car. So he hops out and he's, he's had a terrible day at work and he kind of glares around and looks down and sees this little, little child. He says, what are you waiting for? The kid goes, I, I don't know. Something amazing, I guess. Right, like he wants to see something spectacular. See, Jesus' accusations about his father and against his father didn't stop in the garden. Fast forward a few hours at the cross, on the cross, the son again cries out to his father. And what does he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, he prays the words back to God that had already been given to him in, in Psalm 22. See, he wants to know how can this pain that I'm experiencing be part of your plan? This seems so bad now, how could you possibly turn it into something good? And how does the father respond to his son? Silence, for now. But, But three days later, he would answer in the most triumphant and glorious way we could possibly imagine. Remember that the darkest day in the history of humanity served to bring about that perfect work of redemption that had been planned by God for all of eternity. The greatest act of injustice ever committed, the murder of the perfectly righteous Son of God, secured for us the perfect forgiveness for sins for all who would put their faith and trust in him. Not on the basis of our performance, not on the basis of our obedience, but on the basis of his. And the son cried out to the father, but that didn't mean he didn't know the answer, did it? He knew. He knew exactly what his father was doing. Why have you forsaken me? What's the answer? He did it for you. He did it for us. So why does God remain silent? Whatever he is doing, he is doing it for us. See, God has promised that he is actively right now working all things together for what? For the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. The question is not, does God hear me? But in my complaint, am I even still drawing close to him? Am I willing to embrace and to grapple with the God of the universe? Do I love him enough to ask him the hard questions? Do I have faith enough to believe that he is at work even right now in my pain? Because even when I am faithless, he will remain faithful. Won't you pray with me? God, what a relief it is to know that we're not the only ones who deal with difficult things in our lives. 
but that even the Son of God cried out to his Father in anguish and despair, in uncertainty. And yet, Lord, we see the glorious answer that you provided. And God, we know that you don't promise to fix all of our problems right here and right now. God, we do take solace knowing that you do see us, that you do care about us, and that you are at work in our world. So I pray, Jesus, that this morning, right now, you would fill us with a sense of your presence, that you would allow your grace to wash over us, and Lord, that you would bring us into your perfect peace. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Our closing hymn this morning is hymn 514.